Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Uh, That's how I feel today, people. I can't talk for long because I think I've got a throat infection or a cold or something. Most likely self-inflicted from last week's stag do, so I shouldn't feel too sorry for myself. As I mentioned to you last week, I was in a secret location That was Madrid, the city I used to live in back in 2004-2005. Really good weekend. 15 of us celebrating our friend's upcoming nuptials, which will be in March. So all the best to him. He knows who he is. Really good time being back there. I did try my Spanish. It was pretty terrible. That's a task, as you know from the start of the year, that I want to get good at. So I need to keep practicing the Spanish and try and get a little bit better but let's get on with the show this week's guest he is an olympic gold medalist from london 2012 and it's in canoeing the c2 event it's etienne stott we have a great chat with him really interesting insight into the psychology of a top athlete that is one thing really to listen out to He talks about a lot of things from failure to success, back to failure, and how he can keep moving forward. It's it's a fun chat with Etienne, so that'll be with you in just a moment. But before we get to that, I want to also talk about the retirement this week of the wrestler Daniel Bryan, one of my favorite wrestlers ever. I actually met him in 2009, I think it was in Houston. Really nice guy, and he went on to have great success in the WWE most memorably at WrestleMania 30 when he became the WWE World Heavyweight Champion. And that was a real mark that small guys and good guys really can become the best in the world. I mentioned before that I was listening to his audiobook, so I reckon you should listen to that too. And you can do that on Audible. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best and I'm giving you a 30-day free trial to Audible, where you can download a free audiobook, and why don't you make it Yes by Daniel Bryan, a really inspirational story from the young grappler, one of my favourites of all time, really good book, all you have to do, audibletrial.com forward slash 
best. But for now, let's get on to the interview. Here is the best in the world. Here is Etienne Stott. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr. I thought I'd mix it up a bit today, Etienne. What I normally like to do at the end of the show is ask one of our guests their five favourite things where they list, um, maybe it's a favourite movie or a favourite song or something like that. List the five things and then I pick one to uh, find out a little bit more about. And I thought we'd do this first today. Okay. Uh, So if you don't mind, I'm going to list five favourite things. And if you can uh, give me your answer and then I'll pick one for you to go in a bit more detail. Okay. So let's start with... Favourite website? Favourite website? Um, Wikipedia, hands down. Favourite book? Um, I would say The Lord of the Rings, just a quick one. Favourite country visited? Uh, New Zealand. Favourite sport other than canoeing? Um, Tennis. Favourite musician? I like Pink Floyd, let's say that. That's not a musician, they're a group of musicians, but hopefully that's... Is that passable? That is passable, more than passable. So I'm going to ask you, why New Zealand? Um, I think New Zealand is just uh, an amazing country. Um, it's Unfortunately, it's so far away. If it, was, if it could be towed a little bit closer, uh, I think I'd go there all the time and I'd mm. maybe even try and live there because it just seems to have everything, you know. It's got beautiful uh, wilderness areas um you know and you can do all sorts of activities there you know there's fantastic canoeing there for starters um and there's like you know the beaches are relatively nearby you can do your surfing and there's some great mountains for mountain biking and hiking and walking um and just interesting kind of um you know a land just all sorts of places to explore you know there's not too many people there i don't think and you know you kind of seem like you can be out and around on your own almost and exploring and adventuring and uh it just seems like yeah quite friendly people as well and tasty food and good weather and uh yeah sort of a bit of everything i'd say it's pretty much spot on where i'm standing well, I've never been there, but you've just sold it to me. So, Well, you should go get yourself booked in and get it. But like you say, I think we need to get EasyJet to kind of fly from, from the UK or something. That, that, yeah. that would be great. So you, you clearly like the nature and the outdoors and, and you're a, a canoeist. How did you get into the sport to begin with? So that, I suppose it's all linked together. I started canoeing uh, in the Scouts. So I, I joined the Scouts when I was a kid. Well, I was in the Cubs before that, and then I went to the Scouts. And the Scout leaders that we had in, in my group um, in Bedford, they were just excellent leaders. You know, they were really passionate, um, you know, canoeists and climbers. And they did all sorts of outdoor activities as it was. So they took us, you know, they were probably pretty brave as well um, and pretty adventurous just to take all these kids going crazy out. We did, you know, we did all sorts of stuff. We did hiking and mountain biking and canoeing, kayaking, caving. We did like, um, you know, almost everything that you could you could want to do as a in the Scouts and as a kid, you know, it just seemed so awesome and so adventurous that, uh, you know, that's kind of what got me you know, hooked in. And then later on, I came to kind of appreciate, you know, nature and the outdoors a lot more. And, you know, I got eventually into into 
kayaking and canoeing was what I decided I would I was going to do and I joined a local club and that's what kind of set me off on my kind of competitive journey but before that I had like kind of a big grounding year in just you know that sort of outdoor lifestyle and you know just enjoying being outdoors and adventures you know. How important is it to start as early as possible? Because, for example, I went uh, indoor skiing the other day and I was absolutely terrified. And you've got these kids, they're about five or six years old and they, they have no fear. How important is it to have that, that lack of fear when you take up something which can be quite scary like kayaking and canoeing? Yeah, um, I suppose for me, I was very fearful um, as a child, I think, actually, looking back. Um, I wasn't very good at swimming, for example, because I'd had problems with my ears when I was a kid, so I hadn't been able to learn to swim properly and stuff. So I was, yeah, and my scout leaders always kind of rib me and say, oh, you're always crying and scared to go off the (laughs) climbing thing and all this stuff. And, like, um, I think that wasn't it. You know, it's that support that you get when you're a kid and you're learning. And also, I suppose, in a kind of a complicated sport, uh, you know, like a technical, quite technical sport like canoeing or probably like skiing as well, it just takes a little while to learn. Um, and, you know, it takes the, the, re- the best reason to start when you're young is because it takes maybe, I don't know, five or ten years to get kind of good enough at it to really, really enjoy yourself. You know, you've got to kind of get past, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, make, take the example of surfing until you can stand up on your board you can't actually really have a very great time surfing. So you've got to, it's kind of a steep learning curve, but once you access that level of ability, then the kind of whole world is your oyster. And I suppose fear does play a part in it, but it's just also kind of technical learning as well. And I suppose fear is just something you come to understand, you know, like white water can be very scary. And there is white water out there that literally terrifies me as well. But as you get more skilled, you start to see, you know, what is dangerous and, and what is not and what your skills can handle and that little distance that you can push yourself beyond, you know, what you're comfortable with and actually grow, you know, and, and become kind of a better canoeist and maybe even a little bit of a better person because you realise actually you don't need to be scared in, in quite the same way that you was the next time you encounter this. So that's what I think it's all about. But I don't think it was particularly because I was young and fearless. I was definitely not that. <laughs> <laughs> but you said there's uh, many years to reach that level of competence. When did you realise that you were more than competent, that you were Olympic level, that you could be challenging some of the best people in the world at this sport? Oh, I mean, that took actually ages, I, I suppose. Um, what, what I did, I suppose, I got to kind of go back. And, you know, when I started in canoeing and I started to try and do it more seriously I suppose I wanted to do something with my kind of life on energy you know I just knew that I had to kind of find somewhere to kind of something to be a part of and and up to that point actually I was dead set on becoming an RAF fighter pilot and that kind of hadn't really worked out I'd gone to the air cadets and found out that having people shouting at you and telling you to do stuff wasn't really my scene so I decided you know kind of fell into canoeing with hindsight especially I seen the the fact that you know it was just a community of people I really liked they seemed really cool and friendly and I, I got into it like that and then I suppose that sort of grew and 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 came into being something you know kind of morphed into something and I just sort of thought well actually I'm going to be I'm going to try and be good at this because I met some of my heroes, you know, very early on in canoeing. It's not a huge sport. Some of the best canoeists in the world have always been British. So I could meet some of these kind of heroes. And I realized, I said to myself, almost like, you know, I could be like these guys. I think I can be. 
and so I started to train more and more. I got quite serious quite quickly. You know, I was kind of 13 or 14, and I knew I was going to be, the, you know, five-time Olympic champion and multiple world champion. And that actually never happened. You know, I, as I got better, I realized how hard it was going to be and kind of spent quite a few years in the wilderness almost kind of getting it kicked out of you. You know, that naive ambition that I had when I was a kid kind of was quickly, you know, or relatively quickly kind of turned into something that you realize you're going to be in for the long haul. And it was actually only when I I switched over from doing single kayaking, which is what most people start off. They, and then I switched into doing double canoeing with my friend, Tim Bailey, who eventually won the Olympics with. That's when I sort of actually found something. We had a came under the influence of a coach who was kind of gave us a philosophy. I think that seemed to click a little bit better with what I was doing. I kind of found myself on more like the right path. And then I thought, actually, yeah, we could start to do something really good here. So that was probably quite late when I was about 24, 25 um, as a sort of start of the second wind of my career. And it was only a few years after that that we actually thought, yeah, we could be, you know, we started to see evidence that we were one of the best crews in the world and could get involved at the highest levels. Yeah, because I read that you studied mechanical engineering at university. Yeah, that's right. So how were you, that's a tough degree, so how were you able to juggle that and being a competitive canoeist? Uh, I think it was kind of just sheer bloody-mindedness, really. Um, uh, you know, I didn't do anything else when I was at university apart from working and training. Um, you know, the, the sort of student lifestyle thing um, kind of slipped by uh, very, very easily. Actually, I felt I felt no worries about making that sacrifice. And even to this day, I kind of wish I'd, you know, made more friends and seen more of that university life. But actually, I already had the friends that I wanted in the canoeing community and, you know, made some already awesome met some people there that, you know, I knew there were going to be such cool people to be around. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to train and a degree, you know, I suppose in some ways I needed to have a degree. My parents were kind of keen on my, you know, kind of formal education, I suppose in them days, especially even now, you know, it's good to have something to fall back on. And they, you know, I knew they would not really be happy with me just being a canoeist. So I thought, oh, if I get this degree, I'm more or less, you know, then they'll be cool. I won't have them on my back and I'll be able to go even canoeing even more. So it was very much just a mission, you know. I was kind of on a task from probably fairly early on, yeah. From when I was about 16, it was like there was a straight line from where I was to being the, the, greatest, the greatest canoeist the world has ever seen, which didn't really work out that way. Um, but that, you know, university was just an obstacle or, a, you know, a hurdle to be negotiated. And I really, it was very hard work, but it was just one of those things you just got to do, make it through and then graduated and then carried on training and, and, and got better and better after that as well. So how long were you um, racing with, with Tim before you headed into London 2012? So the, we won the Olympics in our, nine, in our eighth season together. So we, crewed, we, we teamed up uh, just at the end of 2004 after, after the Athens Olympic cycle. So we went all the way through the Beijing cycle, failed to get to Beijing, and then went all the way through to London and did that and then we stayed together for a year, most of a year and, and, and then um, a little bit after that Tim decided he was going to move on and I carried on in canoeing with a new crewmate Mark Proctor who I'm, who I'm racing with at the moment. How much did the disappointment of, of Beijing force you to work even harder say for, for London 2012? Yeah I mean looking back it was absolutely pivotal 
Um, I'd say there were probably two really pivotal moments that set us with the the, the, the necessary kind of approach to to winning in London and Beijing was definitely one of them. Um, the the failure there. We actually thought we were good enough in the run up to the 2008 season. We'd actually done all right. You know, we'd kind of come in. You know, we'd made the top ten in a couple of races around the world. You know, some big races. You know, and we'd sort of seen that we were. We thought we were good enough actually to go to Beijing, um, but actually, as it turned out, we kind of completely crumbled under the occasion. And you know, it was a real. It was a real wake-up call. I didn't feel like at the time. It just felt terrible. <laughs> but especially looking back, and even you know, a few months down the line, we sort of realised if we were going to carry on we had to actually sort ourselves out and there were certain glaring um things that we needed to get right if we were going to go forward because we did not want to carry on and suffer like that again and, and suffer a repeat of that as well as having to go through all that time and effort to actually get nowhere in inverted commas so yeah the Beijing thing was a huge huge thing it was very painful and but we could not really have done without it. We would have probably carried on being kind of medium without that, I'd say. So London 2012, the semi-finals, you come sixth, just scraping into the final, and then, yeah. then you went first, and you provided the, the quickest time in the end. Did you believe at the time that it would be good enough to win the gold? Uh, I suppose that's the great thing about canoe slalom is very difficult you know the, there's no such thing as a goal at the end of the pitch and you know where that is and you've got to get there and get the ball into the net it's very fluid you know sometimes the finals are um, you know the races go faster in the in the finals and sometimes actually people kind of punch themselves out and, and don't do as well as they did in the semi-finals so when we crossed the line um, in that final run uh, we knew uh, as a, as a crew that we'd done a good run. It was very solid and, and quick, and you know we'd had not really any big mistakes. Um, but we looked across, and our coach was kind of like really happy. He was you know really jumping around and seemed very excited. And we hadn't actually known our time from the semi-final, but when he he, he sort of shouted, and you know we were two and a half seconds faster than the fastest time in the semi-final we realized actually that was going to be a very big run because sometimes in the in the middle of a run and even immediately afterwards there's a lot has gone on you're very much in the moment you don't really analyze it you don't really know whether you have gone fast or not it's very difficult to know you can sometimes forget a detail that 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 reminds you how how quick you were or maybe a mistake so we didn't really know how quick we were until we had this reaction from our coach and then we started thinking mm, that is actually a, quite a big run and, and a good time and then we knew you know, there were a lot of other good crews in the final, but we kind of, I suppose even at that point, having done a good run, we thought maybe we might be able to scrape a medal here because sometimes, you know, the time just tumble and tumble and tumble and people get faster and faster. But we knew that was a good marker and I thought, yep, this could be a good day. And, you know, for us, a medal was a good day at that point, definitely. Yes, I can honestly say that. But we didn't really, there were so many good crews, I suppose, we didn't think we were going to win the gold that day. That's That's true as well. And then you did, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right, right in front of your home fans. Did that play any advantage at all, do you think? Um, I think for us, the, the home fans was a, you know, it's a very difficult factor because, again, canoeing is so complicated. There's so many other things going on. Um, well, I suppose we were quite, in the build-up to London, we were very unsure about how the home thing would work because canoeing's got a very, 
you kind of got to ebb and flow with the water. And, and one of the one of the main mistakes that people are doing is trying too hard and going too fast. And they, they miss the chance to use the water and glide and they get tired out too easily. And we thought maybe, you know, if the, the crowd was that, you know, that 12th man or whatever you want expression, it would spur us on and we'd go too fast and get too excited and probably go wrong. So we were quite worried about that, but also a very limited history. We'd, we'd done a couple of races in the UK in our career um, and both had gone quite well. So in 2009, we did the European Championships was in Nottingham, which was at the time our home training centre. And we'd got a bronze medal in the Europeans, which was our kind of breakthrough result and the first major international medal in double double canoes in, in slalom in the UK. So that had gone well. And we sort of thought, yes, there is something about racing in front of the home crowd. But it's very mellow, you know. It was just like the feeling, the good feeling that we had, you know, knowing that the crowd were really there to support us. And, you know, we, they, they, the fans did like us, you know, they knew who we were and, and kind of were supporting us. It was nice, but I, I could not really attribute, you know, any advantage as such to the, to the time that we did. I'd say more it was being comfortable in the venue and comfortable in front of that crowd, even though we'd never experienced anything like it before. It was comfortable experience, really. And uh, that, I think, did help us to, to race at that level. But mostly it was just down to being very mentally prepared and, you know, being on, having a good run that day. So it's quite it's a difficult question to answer. Yeah. Now, you said earlier that when you were younger, you, you had dreams of being the greatest kayaker canoeist of all time. <laughs> and so you must have visualized at some point being on the podium with that gold medal with the national anthem playing how did it actually feel when you were there doing it um yes it's very hard to even answer that because for us it was an extraordinary moment it's very surreal um once we had been declared the winners and it was just um you could hardly believe it. Uh, we were sort of in a sort of dream world, and I kind of say to everybody, I could not describe it very easily. It was kind of like the best, and the way I tell people, you know, it was like you're in a movie of your own life. You know, you're watching this film, and it's like this is incredible what's going on. And I suppose when I compared it in my mind, it would only be afterwards because at the time we were just kind of in this whirlwind, you know, we were in the middle of kind of like the eye of the storm, you know, that's almost like what it was. And all around us, people were going absolutely bananas. You know, the fans in the stadium were having a great time. All our support staff and, you know, the other paddlers around were really happy for us. And it was really, really strange. You were just kind of stood there going, you know, I've just won Olympics. This should feel really something, but I don't know. I just feel like, don't know you could not describe it so it was a very very odd experience and you wish i do remember standing there thinking ah i cannot kind of hold on to this moment you know if we could only kind of bottle those experiences and kind of just stay there for a little bit longer but kind of time just you know passes and carries it on and it carries the experience through and yeah i'll never be able to relive that experience again but it was extraordinarily special but i couldn't kind of capture it any more strongly than i than i could at the time and it was just amazing, but it was yeah over too soon almost, or over quickly enough, and then it you know then everything else happened and all the other things carry on. So it was it was a very amazing experience, but very surreal. Have you ever watched it back? Yeah, yeah, I watched it back. Sometimes I show it you know when I'm visiting a school or we do a talk and we we watch the race runs quite often and show that. But then sometimes you watch the the podium ceremony. 
and I suppose we both do look a bit stunned. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the 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 crowd, you know, was so the crowd was so happy. You know, there was, was a lot, a lot of canoeists in the crowd, and also just a lot of you know normal fans. It was a very big, very big stadium for a canoe venue, um, and it was just there was a massive energy. You know, the the crowd had come there to see something cool, and you know, a British one-two was basically perfect for them and so they were absolutely going bananas and it was it was a very 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 special day you know very special time and to be kind of in the middle of it almost I sometimes wish I could have been watching it and been in the crowd myself because I think it would have been extraordinary to to see that you know it would have been a dream come true for me to see you know British people succeeding like that um, but for me to be actually be that person who delivered that made it seem even stranger, you know. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing time, but it's very, very difficult to get hold of, sort of thing. Yeah, incredible. So after the Olympics, Tim decided to retire, and you're now working with Mark Proctor. How did you feel when Tim decided to retire, and, and what has Mark brought to your team now? Well, I suppose when Tim retired, I knew um, that Tim was you know, more inclined in that direction. I think, you know, even in the lead up to 2012, we'd both decided, you know, that might be our last Olympics. Um, if we hadn't got selected, for example, to go to the London Games, we'd have probably probably retired at that point. Um, I think more than likely we'd have just said, you know, we've got to move on, we've got to go and do something else with our lives. Um, and I think Tim felt like that after London. Um, and I, myself, kind of wanted to carry on. So it didn't come as a big surprise but when he said to me, yeah, I've decided I want to stop, it was still a huge, you know, kind of moment. It was still a huge thing because, yeah, he's a guy you, you know, you spend all that time with and have done all that stuff with and it kind of will never be the same again. Um, he's still my best friend and I still speak to him a lot, but it was the end of an era, really. And so it was, yeah, it's kind of unsurprising, but still kind of shocking at the same time, and you know, kind of unsettling. Um, but I always, you know, knew something, you know, one of, you know, a crew has to split up in the end. You can't canoe until you're until the grave. So someone has to someone has to move on. So it was kind of like that. And I think that I was just happy for him, and you know, hoping that he would you know do well and have a good life. And I was quite confident that I wanted to carry on canoeing. Um, I was one of the reasons he retired was during my I had a long rehabilitation from shoulder surgery that we suffered. I suffered an injury when in our last, what turned out to be mine and Tim's last race together. And um, I was in a big rehabilitation. Once I'd got out of that, I started to get myself back on track. And then I teamed up with Mark. Um, and Mark is a you know really great athlete. You know, very dedicated. He's quite a bit younger than me. He's about ten years younger than me. I think nine years younger than me. And he just was uh, you know very good canoe singles, a C1 athlete. And he seemed to be you know very dedicated, very hardworking, and. Uh, you know, kind of very focused on what he was doing. He didn't seem, he seemed to take what he was doing very, very seriously. And that is kind of, for me, was the almost the main criteria, um, you know, that you just know someone who's going to be working as hard as you are to get to what you're doing. And I suppose he brought that in. And I suppose for me, the, the, the main thing is that he brought himself into the crew so I could actually carry on canoeing because there was no real way that I was going to, you know, kind of unspecialized from double canoes. I needed to find a crewmate to carry on my career. So to have him coming into the crew meant that I could carry on, and I learned a huge amount about you know teamwork and forming you know that bond of trust and that kind of that relationship in a very short time because myself and Tim we'd known each other even before we'd canoed in a crew, 
we've known each other since we were 15, so for years and years and years, and we'd kind of grown up naturally in this sport. And with Mark, it was a challenge to actually form a, a very tight crew and a very strong unit in a you know on, in about a year is the the time that we had, and so we learned a lot, and that was a great thing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Informative chat so far with Etienne. We'll have more from him in just a moment. Now, Michael Phelps is one of the best athletes in the world. And to do that, he's had to go through some specific routines. And that really is a power of habit. And that is the audiobook I'm listening to right now, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And you could download that for free. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best for your free audiobook download. That's with audible.com. That's a 30-day free trial with one free audiobook. And if you like it, you know, you can sign on. I've signed on. I get an audiobook every month to listen to. It makes me a little bit smarter, whether I'm in the gym, I'm in the car, I'm walking. I'm, wherever I am, I try and listen to an audiobook. You can do that at audibletrial.com forward slash best. Let's get back to Etienne Stott. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Now, you mentioned that shoulder injury, and you've been a little bit unlucky the last few years, and that, that shoulder injury took you out for what, nearly a year, is that right? Yeah, I suppose, yeah, most of a year, really, yes. And c- could you do any exercise during that time, and, and how did you cope mentally? Uh, I suppose the second time so the second shoulder surgery I had um, which was the one in 2013 was the most serious one it was one that lasted a year but um, in the build-up to London in 2011 I'd actually dislocated my other shoulder and that turned out to be kind of like a six-month recovery and so the the recovery that I took in 2013 was actually kind of built on the experience of of the previous uh, injury that I'd recovered from and it was quite um, important 
although this was actually a much bigger job, it was really messed up and, and had a very serious surgery and the sort of surgery that sometimes you don't recover from quite right. Um, it was just important to know, you know, the process. And I, 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 by then I was experienced and I knew my kind of my own mind and what I had to do to sort of survive, which is kind of what you have to do when you're injured. Sometimes it feels like you're in a kind of a battle for your own life. And it was a case of, you know, using all the support staff that we have, you know, I had a fantastic surgeon and the doctor and the physio working with me, working with the strength and conditioning and my coach to make a really good plan. Because I suppose a lot of people, when they find themselves in tough times, you know, it's really hard to, to be happy. But if you've got a plan and you've got a kind of a way out, you know, a glimpse of light at the end of the tunnel, however you want to describe it, you know, you can kind of winch yourself out of there bit by bit. And even though you might not be completely happy and confident, you know you've actually got a lifeline to work with. When you've just been chucked at the bottom of a hole and you can't get out, then, you know, you'd be right to feel a bit pretty bad about things. But I had a kind of this lifeline and a kind of inner, maybe an inner confidence is maybe a bit strong word, but an inner plan that meant I thought I could get out of it. And so, yeah, it was just a case of just training what I could, you know, doing exercise on my other arm, keeping fit and doing all the right things and then gradually, gradually coming back bit by bit because it was such a long, drawn-out recovery before I could actually be training back at that level. It was just, uh, you know, having that plan and having a sort of vision of what you could do, that's the sort of thing for me that is the most important thing. So what is that? Is that like exercise bike or walking or...? Oh, man, yeah. The exercise bike is probably, uh, uh, unfortunately, a key part of rehabilitation <laughs> for canoeists, you know, because it's just like your lower limbs and you can keep quite fit like that. And, yeah, at first, yeah, just walking, you know, being outside and getting, you know, the fresh air into your lungs and seeing, uh, you know, being active, just that, that feeling of moving around and stuff. And I suppose, yeah, very quickly could do even when I was wearing like a sling you can do like circuit training involving your other arm and body weight exercises and all things like that so actually there's an outlet as well for the energy that you naturally have stored up ready to kind of jump around and you've got to kind of thrash that energy out of you a little bit to kind of feel like you've done something and like that day was you know worthwhile and contributing to the future so it is very good to have that plan because if you don't have it yeah you kind of end up you know that I, I do believe actually your energy kind of turns to turns to black if you're not careful and it turns to to bad things and to kind of bad places in your mind so it's good to have an outlet to, to direct that and then I think it can you can pull yourself out sort of thing and the injury happened in Spain and you did return to that course and you competed there mentally how much how important was that to return to effectively the scene of the crime the the place where yeah. you got hurt to, to move on um it was quite important actually um i suppose where we train now in, in lee valley whitewater center in london is probably one of the biggest and most intense physically you know challenging courses in the world so in the build-up to doing that race in spain i'd actually trained quite a bit in london and and you know, if you can survive London in inverted commas training day in and day out there for a little while, you know that you're in pretty good condition. The trick about the, the river in Spain is it is quite shallow and it is a bit nasty if you don't do things right on there. So it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a challenge to go there. But again, you know, it's always hard to make kind of like that a huge leap of faith. But the good thing about having a nice plan and a good rehabilitation plan is that you never really want to make that big leap 
you just take lots of small steps towards where you're going so that each time you know you're not putting yourself in danger too far you kind of just test it then you come back and then you test it a bit more then you come back and so each time you're building up and so by the time you're coming down to you know that section where I dislocated my shoulder doing we did in fact in training that exact move that I hurt myself doing um, it's a case of like yes it's okay I'm scared this is how I hurt my shoulder but I've done everything I can, everything I possibly can to make it feel okay and to be that I should have grounds to be confident that it's not going to happen again and then you've just got to convince yourself to go and do it and it's not actually that big a step, it's just a case of doing it and you do it and you go, oh, it was fine, I can do it and now you've done it and then you can move on sort of thing. So it's just, a, yeah, the small steps creating the big steps is I suppose how I would describe a rehabilitation from a serious injury comes on. But obviously at the World Championships, it was a bit more different than that because you you got uh, hit in the side, I believe, in the, in the ribs area, and yeah. yet you still raced on. How, how could you do that? What, what what forced you to be able to do something like that when you were clearly very injured? Yeah, I suppose I first of all got to correct you slightly because I, there was a bit of... Um, we were avoiding someone hitting me in the side, which ah, yes, I yes, ended yes. up kind of squeezing myself in a very awkward... So basically, I injured myself as, as usual. <laughs> um, but it was... Uh, what it was, I mean, the, the World Championships was our was part of our Olympic trials, so part of the Olympic trials for Rio 2016. And, yeah, it was only subsequently that we found out that the muscle... Well, the muscle was torn and, and damaged... Uh, but we knew there was something really bad and, and painful going on. But it was like, um, well, coming in the build-up in the days before the race, I was actually terrified of racing. I did did think that I wasn't going to be able to make it, and I thought I was going to kind of break down in the middle of a run, and it was all going to go wrong. And, and this kind of story had developed in my mind, and it was literally the most horrible thing you know and I, I was scared because if we did not compete in the world championships it would mean it would be that much more difficult to get selected to the Rio games um, so more or less uh, it was a case of we have to compete you know we must compete and I managed to kind of with help from my the, the psychologist and also kind of searching myself I kind of managed to convince myself that I just had to go out and give it a bash and like many things, I suppose, it turned out to be less scary than I thought it was and, and less uh, painful. It was still really, really painful, but it did not completely, you know, I could actually canoe. Um, it wasn't perfect by a long stretch, but it meant that I could actually get down the run. I knew I could get down the run by the time I'd done my warm-up. I thought, yeah, this is going to work out roughly okay. Whether or not it does or not, I could not decide. But it, I just managed to sort of, get hold of myself and rationally say to myself, this this has to be done. We have to try at least. And so we did. And in fact, it turned out to be very, very painful, but reasonably effective. And I think Mark was pulling like double double his usual amount that day. And, wow. uh, you know, we managed to do a good run and to get through. And that gave us a few extra days before our semi-final. And by the end of the campaign, yeah, my side had really deteriorated but we kind of got what we came for, which was a, a good placing in the world. And that helped us, you know, that helped us establish our position in the Olympic selection trials. So how important is the use of a psychologist? And you mentioned you had built up a story in your mind. How easy or difficult do you think it is to kind of reframe that story, to change that story? Or is that once it's in there, you don't think you can? 
Um, well, in terms of the first question, I think for me, psychology has been the most important part of my career, actually, and has given me the greatest you know, growth and insight uh, into my sport. I think, you know, everyone, anyone can train and people can train hard and, and easy. But actually, when it comes down to, you know, performances on big days and, you know, those kind of peak performances, it comes down to basically confronting yourself inside and convincing yourself to get out on the start line and, and race and really confronting for me it was about a lot about confronting my fears and um you know kind of getting over those this idea and understanding as well where these fears come from and addressing them in some cases and learning to live with them in others so the psychology support that i had particularly you know was really useful and, and in the build up to london 2012 the work that me and tim did with the the psychologist really helped us to understand what London, you know, what that challenge would be like and anticipate it and then build strategies to, to deal with it. And I suppose, so that's what, over the years, that's been really, really important. I suppose with, with regard to those stories, yes, I think they are very, very powerful uh, in our minds. You know, in my mind especially, I've got a reasonably decent imagination and, you know, I can scare myself literally to death. It feels like sometimes, you know, and almost you feel so scared and, and you know, different ideas, different stories, not just to do with canoeing, just to do with life and, and all these things can be very, very frightening for me. Um, but I've learned over the years to to spot when it is a story and it is really just a story and it is a, it is possible once you realize where it comes from and what the reason for this story is and you can actually probe it and, and learn and figure out what it is that's true about that story and what it is that's actually just, you know, a, a story. And then you can set about dismantling it, finding the truth and using that truth to, to actually cut through it all and get the job done, which is what you're there to do and what you really want to do is just that this, these big fears and these stories are just holding you back and kind of weighing you down. But once you can kind of be free of them, then you're free to actually go canoeing or do whatever you want to do and express that training, express all that passion and the love that you have for your sport into the water and in, into the, you know, out there and put it out there. And that's a great feeling to be free of that. And I'm very, very grateful that I've learned about that in my career. And it's, I'm, I'm really happy that I know about it. And it's still a challenge to do every time. There's always something to worry about and always something to be scared about. But trying to do it each time and learning about it is really cool. And unfortunately, you weren't able to qualify for the Rio Olympics. I believe you'll be going as a reserve. How have you, you coped with that disappointment? Um, I suppose I'm still coping with it. Um, it is very, very tough. Um, like I say, when, when I missed out, me and Tim missed out on the Beijing Games, we were on the outside of that bubble um, in London. We were at the very centre and at the very highest point of the bubble, I suppose. And now I'm on the outside again. Um, it's very tough, you know. The Olympics is a, you know, it's a it's a black and white world. You're either in the Olympics or not in the Olympics. Uh, you've either got a gold medal or you haven't, or you've got a medal and you haven't, or something like that, you know. And it's very easy to feel kind of outside um, outside it if you're not involved. And it's really tough. It takes a while to. Uh, you know, to adjust to, and even now I can be honest and say, yeah, it's it's tough to f imagine not going to the games and not being able to defend my title in inverted commas. Uh, that's real. It is sad, but like a lot of the times, I do believe actually there's an opportunity I can choose if I'm determined to. I can choose what I want to focus on, and I have got things to focus on that I can be very happy about, like. 
I have won a gold medal at the Olympics in the past or I have got good ability in canoeing. Just because I'm not going to the Olympics doesn't make me a terrible canoeist. Um, you know, things like that. Choosing what you're going to focus on to make yourself, you know, it's easy. It's easy to see a dark world out there all the time. You know, you just have to turn the news on if you want to make yourself feel bad and, and feel feel like this is tough. But actually there's so many things we're so lucky to have and so so lucky to be a part of and so many lucky things that have already happened. I, I can... If I choose to focus on them, I find that I don't feel as bad about the, the Rio thing. Although if I choose to, I can still make myself feel pretty sick about it if I want to. But I just don't want to live like that. I want to live going forwards and I want to live with what I've got in my hands. You mentioned the news there. There's been a lot of talk about the bad water conditions in Rio. Is that something you would have been concerned with or is it something some of your fellow canoeists are concerned with? Yeah, so because the, the white water venue in Rio is actually built a little bit out of the, the main city and it actually uses a pumped and clean water supply that goes round and round. It's not actually on one of those lakes or the horrible bits and pieces where the, the really bad stuff is, is living. We're actually fairly comfortable about the water quality at our venue, but there's always just a general, you know, it's a bit, there are more... You know, you've got to have your jabs for going out there and all this sort of thing, and the Zika virus, all that stuff. We're a bit unsure, but I think, you know, mostly our venue will be, you know, sound, and uh, I don't think most of the slalom canoes will be too concerned about about that side of things. Now you're not going to go to Rio. Are you going to continue to race? Are you going to look for Tokyo? Are you going to look to retire soon? Are you going to look to try something else? What will your goals be now? Yeah, so the the interesting thing is that in the Rio Games will be the last time that my category is contested. So the canoe doubles category won't be a part of the Tokyo program, and I am a specialist uh, in C2. So I definitely will not be in in uh, Tokyo no matter what happens. Um, so I am headed for retirement. There's no doubt about it, and uh, I'm pretty sure um, in this next year, uh, you know, I will want to move on. Um, it will be time to move on. I've not really made massive plans and ideas about what to do, um, you know, when that will be and exactly how that that form will take. But more or less, every double canoeist in the world is going to be out of a job after 2016 because there's no more there's no more Olympics for those for these guys. Um, so I just know that um, for me. I'm very, very, I have become interested and very, um, I'm very interested in psychology. I don't know if this has come across in, in our talk, you know, but I'm really fascinated by the power of the human mind and the power of people, you know, to grow and to have this, you know, these things that they can do that they don't think they can do. A little bit like what happened to me. I, I, I thought I could do it, then I realized I couldn't. And then actually in the end, I managed to be able to do something that I think is quite, quite cool. And I'm sort of very interested to maybe get out there and, help people realize their potential and, and maybe take down some of the barriers that we build for ourselves in our minds and to make, you know, make greater things possible for all sorts of people. That's kind of my longer term idea. How I'll actually do that, I don't know exactly, but I'm kind of clear that I want to work in the realm of, you know, helping people to, you know, be, get more out of themselves. And uh, I'd be very, very grateful if I get the chance to do that because it would seem like a good, a good, thing, good way of using my life up. Well, definitely from this chat, people have got a lot they can learn from you. Uh, if they want to follow you, Etienne, on Twitter or any kind of social media, how, how can we learn more about psychology, more about your career and more about the, the rest of the success you'll have in, in canoeing? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, I'm on Twitter. My name on that is at Etienne Stott. Um, we have a Facebook page, um, myself and Mark Proctor. Um, it's, um, if you search for Mark Proctor Etienne Stott C2, it'll, it'll pop up there. I'm sure you'll be able to find that. 
And I have a blog as well, which is Etienne Stott's Canoe Slalom blog. I'm not super prolific on any of these platforms, I suppose. But when I, I try to put out something good on them once in a while, and uh, I suppose it's like one of those things, watch this space. At the moment, I'm very busy training and uh, getting things organized. But I'm hoping in the end, you know, through those channels and just through the, you know, generally speaking, I'm hoping to kind of, put something out that will people will be able to follow progress and just following you know british canoeing um if you if you follow on facebook or on on the internet british canoeing will have lots of news there's lots of really cool interesting canoeist characters in our team right now and a lot of great potential for those stories to to develop you can watch you know and keep an eye on it all and canoeing is a great sport all i can say is yeah getting keep an eye on it and learn about the athletes and then watch them in Rio and watch them beyond and you'll probably find it's a really cool sport to to know about. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be looking very closely at Rio 2016. Etienne Stott, thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Thanks a lot to Etienne Stott for being on the best in the world, clearly the best in the world, because he's an Olympic champion, one of the dreams that we will always strive to do if we are in sports or whatever the equivalent is in our everyday life, in our job, when we want to reach the pinnacle. There's certainly some interesting things there with Etienne, specifically with psychology. I hope he does go into that field because it's clear he has a passion for it. And he touched on a lot of subjects which a few of our previous guests have spoken about before, about psychology, about visualisation. Maybe listen back to Darren Campbell, for example, Ben Askren. There's so many different people who have talked about psychology and motivation, and they're very good as well. All you have to do is go to the iTunes page, Best in the World with Richard Parr. Also, you can go to the website, richardparr.net. And if you have any feedback, go to at Richard underscore par on Twitter and on the iTunes. Please subscribe, rate, review, download. Love to get your feedback. That's the way we can make this show even better. But for now, I'll leave it there because my throat's still a little bit croaky, as you can probably hear. But I'll speak to you next week. Bye for now. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.